You've got a bank that wants to that takes a, an explicit view against certain people from an ESG perspective, and the other one that says, welcome all comers. Over time, the more liberal bank ought to win more business by people who might otherwise be affected by the other bank's stance. So ideally, the free market sorts these problems out without further intervention or further regulation. But if, if push comes to shove, regulate this stuff. Coming up on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with Tim Price, an asset manager and author. Tim says there's been a war on cash, with the latest battle being plans for central bank digital currencies. These things are wildly unpopular with people, and they will be even more wildly unpopular when people start to appreciate the, the, the darker aspects of them. I cannot see any tangible benefit to people in the, in the economy of using this versus cash, or even just a debit card. He talks about the oversized influence of debt and inflation in today's chaotic world. Inflation is not an act of God. It's not something that comes like a disease or something that comes out of a clear blue sky. Inflation is a policy. We're living through a period of explicit state-sanctioned inflationism. And that seems to be the, the common thread behind a lot of things that are happening in the world right now. I'm Lee Hall. This is British Thought Leaders. Tim Price, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Banking has become the latest battleground in the culture wars. See, politically controversial figures such as Nigel Farage have had their accounts closed. And it feels a bit wrong that someone should lose access to an essential service because of their beliefs, but you know, the, flip the flip argument to that being, well, why should a private company have to trade with someone they don't want to in a free market? Do you think debanking is ever justified in a free society? I'm not sure it is. I mean, I, I don't work for a bank. I work for a, an asset management company, but we're both, they're both very heavily regulated by the, in, in our case, the Financial Conduct Authority. So there are rules and regulations around this stuff. It seems clear that in relation to the Coots debacle, it was a breach of confidence, a breach of confidentiality, which is clearly a no-no. But also the idea that any institution can withhold its services on a subjective assessment of someone's politics, I think, is ex taking us in an extremely dark direction. Well, it's not like he's particularly that extreme anyway, really. No, I mean, has he, has he convicted any crime? Not to my knowledge. No. He, so he, he's, he's deemed to be out there by centrists, but I think most people, particularly those like me who are Brexiteers anyway, would say, he's, no, he's, just, he's clearly a polarizing character, but that doesn't mean you should have banking services withheld. And the problem with a, a banking facility, a bank account, is this is this is pretty much like a utility. You can't function in a modern society without having banking, banking accounts. So it's easy it's easy to say, well, that they should you know they're a, a private business, but they're a very heavily heavily regulated private business. We're seeing a lot of these big corporates now um, adopt these increasingly progressive policies. Could you talk to us a bit about ESG, DEI? I mean, what are these things, and, and what's happening there? Bluntly, as far as I can tell, they, they seem to have surfaced out of uh, BlackRock. I mean, the, the asset management firm BlackRock has, has not been silent on the topic of, of ESG. And it's as a $10 trillion asset manager, it clearly has an enormous amount of clout. I was more than surprised to see that their own CEO, uh, Larry Fink, has now publicly disavowed his commitment to ESG. So they seem to be themselves backpedaling on this. Not to put too fine a point in it, I'd, I'd label it cult, something akin to cultural Marxism. I mean, BlackRock has 
pretty massive, isn't it, in the, in the scheme? So the, the largest asset management group in the world, albeit a lot of that will be passive investment. So it won't necessarily be actively managed in the same way that we, we think of asset management firms being you know, stock pickers. But it's, it's got, as I say, it's got an awful lot of cloud. So it felt like a lot of these corporations adopted these policies pretty much all at the same time. Where did they come from and what's behind pushing them all into adopting them? It's a very good question. I wonder whether an entity that we might call Davos Man might be partly responsible for some of this. But it, I, I don't think it's arising out of a, a, a natural free capital market. I think it's arising out of something, say, to use the phrase, far closer to cultural Marxism. But the, the, the reason I'm resistant to this stuff is because, in large part, simply because it's completely subjective. So who gets to determine whether something is for the social good and something isn't? And you're, you're getting companies like tobacco companies and oil companies being given very high ESG scores, where you think that, the, I mean, we, we have no problem with either, but you'd think that something that was connected to a polluting industry would, would not necessarily score that highly. So there's, there's no rhyme or reason to some of these assessments. ESG is, what does ESG stand It's for? environmental and social governance. Right. So clearly there's an environmental aspect to it, so there's a kind of woke green aspect to it. Um, there's, there's someone I'd give credit to, because it was very influential on me. There's a gentleman by the name of Sean Corrigan, who's an economist based in Switzerland, Zurich, I think. And about 20 years ago, we had a drink together in uh, St. James's, just up the road. And he introduced me to two things. Firstly, he pointed out to me, or he suggested, that the very idea of anthropogenic climate change, that is, that human, being, human activity is responsible for climate change, is essentially nonsense, because the biggest influence on our climate is this gigantic ball of gas called the sun. Mm. And the second thing I give him credit for is he's the first person that introduced me to the phrase, to Gramsci's phrase, the long march through the institutions, the idea that over time that the, what couldn't be achieved in warfare could be achieved in peacetime through the slow accumulation of Marxist interests throughout the administration. I'd suggest, again, not to be overly controversial, but I'd suggest that Gramsci's long march has pretty much arrived at its terminus point now. That if, if one were concerned about some of these trends that seem to be happening in the world, not least the rise of ESG and DEI, Cultural Marxism accounts for accounts for the the popularity of them. In other words, these are not these are not free market capitalist uh, trends. They're they're having they're coming from altogether left left of, left of center. We've seen some quite effective boycotts in recent times of some companies that are adopting these policies. I mean, tar, tar, Target was one with, with a yeah. clothing line that was aimed at transgender kids, and Bud Light seems to have been the most yeah, uh, celebrated yeah, yeah. one so far. Do you think that's indicating a turn of the tide or are those just I hope, waves I on certainly, the journey? I certainly hope so. Yeah. I mean, again, I was asked um, recently by, by another uh, media group, uh, related media group, what was uh, you know, my thoughts on the whole issue of debanking. And I'm uh, more than happy to describe myself as a libertarian, so a free market libertarian. Ideally, the free market sorts, the invisible hand sorts these problems out for itself. So. If you've got a choice between two institutions, say, that for, this, for the sake of this argument in the banking sector, you've got a bank that wants to that takes a, an explicit view against certain people from an ESG perspective, and the other one that says, welcome all comers. Over time, the more liberal bank ought to win more business by people who might otherwise be affected by the other bank's stance. So 
ideally the free market sorts these problems out without further intervention or further regulation. But if, if push comes to shove, regulate the stuff. But I think there already is. Already banks are prohibited from making these kind of assessments. So already I think we're that th those entities that have already fallen foul of you know the media, let's say, or the, the the backlash, they're already on thin ice. So if we think that the free market will correct itself over time, what kind of time scale are we looking at, do you reckon? Well, we've had a lot. The ESG has been with us for a while. I'd say probably five years plus. So ideally, the you know the pendulum swings and the pendulum swings back. Hopefully, a lot of these problems will resolve themselves over the next few years. But. Um, it's been, the, the scale of the backlash has been a joy to behold over the last three to six months, certainly. Are you seeing much evidence of this stuff in your line of work? Well, what we're seeing is, it may or may not be related. So to go, to go, to go back a step, we're asset managers and we manage people's life savings and we take that, that role very seriously. So we, we're not just glib about trying to protect people's money and, and help it grow. We would, as a business, trace all, pretty much all of the world's problems, certainly on the economic stage, back to the problem of debt. There is simply too much debt in the system, predominantly government debt. If you accept the argument there's too much debt in the system that's clogging the arteries of, of global capital, then you have to really accept the follow-on argument, which is there's only three ways of resolving this, this problem or this predicament now. The first is that governments engineer enough economic growth to keep the debt serviced. We'd argue that's impossible now. There's, there's, there's simply too much of the debt. The second resolution is you can call it default, or if you want to be more polite, you can call it a restructuring or a, a debt jubilee. But that would instantaneously bankrupt probably the banking and pension fund industries of the world. So let's park that one. What that gives rise to is the third option. And what's in box number three has been the preferred choice by every bankrupt government since, since the beginning of time, and that's you inflate it away, you inflate the value of the debt away. So in the words of the great Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises, inflation is not an act of God, it's not something that comes like a disease or something that comes out of a clear blue sky. Inflation is a policy. We're living through a period of explicit state-sanctioned inflationism, and that seems to be the, the common thread behind a lot of things that are happening in the world right now. Um, it would also have a bearing on, for example, their, the authorities wish to introduce CBDC, central bank digital currency, because that's the equivalent of a monetary reset. Now, it, seem, it seems to us that the, the, the current system that we have globally, the basically a, a, fiat, a fiat currency, predominantly the dollar for global trade, but a fiat currency that's not backed by anything tangible other than the full faith and credit of the US government or US politicians, that system's now unworkable. It's, it's no longer fit for purpose. So you'll, I'm sure, have, have seen references to de-dollarization over the last few months, which seems to be accelerating as a, as a trend. And there's a lot of news flow over the so-called BRICS economies, the Brazil's, Russia's, India, and China's of this world, looking with some alarm at not least the, the US sanctions against Russia and the, I would call it, the arbitrary seizure of Russian foreign reserves held abroad and thinking, do we want to conduct our, our trade in this currency anymore? A currency that can be printed out of thin air, how about a currency that may be in part tangibly backed by maybe gold or oil or some combination of commodities? There are a few interesting things you touched on there, one being inflation. I mean, we're, we're led to believe that it's a kind of 
natural force and the prices keep going up, but technological advances would suggest prices would go down. So inflation, is it, is it a natural force? Um, it's a natural force when you have a compromised central banking system of the type that we have today. I mean, words are important, and the, the definition of inflation is important, has to be important. So as a, uh, a classical or maybe Austrian school sympathizer, the, the definition of inflation I would make is that inflation is an increase in the money supply, which I guess is a sort of Friedman, Friedman perspective on inflation. So if central banks have the privilege to create money out of thin air, which they do, and then flood the economy with it, flood the banking system with it, expect prices to go up. So if you increase, and this, this, this came about in spades during the lockdown, where we basically put the economy into a deep freeze and then simultaneously flooded the, mar the market with money. Well, there's no free lunch, so uh, it's no surprise that now how many billion or trillion dollars have been pumped into the system, prices just about everything are going up. Um, people need to understand that central bank, what, that the motivations of central banks are not necessarily the same as the motivations of the, of the people in the functioning economy. So we, as, as you say, in a normal, whatever normal is these days, in a normal economic system, you'd expect prices to decline, as you've, as you've said, because there's a naturally deflationary impulse by the free market. People make things, they create things, they improve things, they you know, invent things, and all of those are deflationary forces. But the, the, the opposite side of that coin is that you have governments throughout the world that are hopelessly indebted, and the only way they can keep the, their show on the road is by continually printing money and inflating away the debt. So that's the problem. So, which side wins that? I think we're now in the process of finding out. You've got deflationary forces by the real economy. The markets, I think, want to deflate. Um, but central banks and governments have to keep the inflation game going because it's the only thing that keeps them on life support. Which wins out? And we're having a battle royale between those two forces. But so far, it does look like inflation has the, uh, the upper hand, which is in turn why within our client portfolios, the things we're most interested in are basically inflation hedges, things like gold, silver, real assets rather than paper ones. I think it was Voltaire that said every paper currency ultimately goes back to its intrinsic value, which is nothing. Eight years ago, you published a book called The War on Cash. Now we're seeing retail outlets flat out refusing to take cash despite it being legal tender. Do you think the war on cash is over now? I don't think so. I mean, it's, it's never over until the fact that he sings, but... Um, Clearly, there is some kind of, there again is some kind of agenda to try and remove cash from, uh, from the high street, from banks, from commercial interactions generally. I remember when the first lockdown happened, and I live in, um, in Belsize Park in Hampstead in northwest London, and our local Tesco just around the corner refused to accept cash. And we ended up writing to the Bank of England asking whether this was even legal. Because cash is legal tender, so how can a shop arbitrarily decide it, doesn't, it won't accept it? Did you get a response? We, we got a response from the bank, but they basically said, well, it's a free market, let them do what they want, which wasn't a terribly satisfactory response, as you can appreciate. Uh, and they, of course, Tesco at the time would have said, oh, it's because of health, it's because of health grounds, which is also nonsense. Um, now, I don't know the sort of the legal ins and outs of the argument, but if, if there is no provision in law as it stands to protect the use of cash as part of a natural functioning economy, then there ought to be protection in law. And if there were any party that said, we will protect 
the role of cash, I would be I would be huge. I'd be a huge advocate for that. Why was cash under attack in the first place? Well, you, you, in so many of these topics, you need to do this kind of the Watergate response, which is follow the money, or or ask the question, qui bono, who benefits from these things. It is clearly in the interests of central banks, central bank interests, to remove cash from the economy because the introduction of CBDC is, is a central banker's dream come true. But the issue of central bank digital currency, it seems to me, is a, is a solution in search of a problem. There is no problem. The only people, as far as I can tell, who want the introduction of CBDC are central bankers themselves. Nobody else wants this stuff. And the worst thing about CBDC, the, the idea of it, is that it's a form of cash that can be turned off on demand at source. It's a form of cash that's programmable. So basically, if you, if you, you may end up going to Tesco or whatever supermarket and you're trying to buy a product, maybe it's meat, maybe it's booze, and the machine says, I'm sorry, you've already had your red meat allowance for this month, so you can't buy this product. That's, that's the, the, exactly the kind of sort of social credit type stuff that, can, that, is, that is consistent with the introduction of CBDC. So, but they're doing it in China. But they're doing it in China, but that, I, I wouldn't necessarily say China's the role model for any free functioning economy. Well, these CBDCs, centrally, central bank digital currencies, what are the dangers of them? Well, like I say, it, you've got a form of cash that is programmable. It can be programmed. It can be instructed to have a shelf life so that if you don't spend it within, say, two months, it's gone forever. But we have a form of cash already called cash, and it has a, an indefinite shelf life. And more to the point, it's also a bearer security. So now if I reach into my pocket and pull out a £10 note, that has value to me as the holder of the money. And I can spend it however I like, and I'll spend it legally, but I can spend it however I like, and there's no attribution back to me in terms of what, what, that, what, what that gets spent on. But CBDC, everything you do is, tr is, tra is tracked and traced. That's not a society I want to live in. A lot of governments around the world are all pushing forward their plans for these CBDCs. Do you think it's inevitable at this point? Well, I think it may be inevitable they get rolled out, but it's by no means inevitable to me that they're actually going to succeed. So I think Nigeria is one of the countries that's already launched uh, uh, an e-currency. I think it's called the e-Naira. And the last time I checked, half a percent of the population had adopted it. So 99.5% of Nigerians don't want anything to do with it. And I don't, I don't blame Yeah, exactly. Really? So again, this, these things are wildly unpopular with people, and they will be even more wildly unpopular when people start to appreciate the, the, the darker aspects of them. I cannot see any tangible benefit to people in the, in the economy of using this versus cash, or even just a debit card. This is not to say that we have to pay for everything with folding paper. It's just people should have the flexibility to pay in whichever way they like, and if it's legal tender, so be it. If people are worried about these CBDCs, is there anything they can do, or do they just need to wait and see what happens? Um, I think one thing, well, first, as the phrase has it, use it, don't, you know, use it, don't lose it. So the more, the more that people retain cash as a form of payment, the better. Right. So I, I am always packing cash. Um, I'll always pay cash where I, where I can, where people will accept it. Mm. Um, I think another, th another strategy that you can use is actually to, 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 to think and shop local rather than just blithely hand away money to, you know, to the big corporations. So th those businesses that are probably have a vested interest in keeping cash uh, are going to be local ones. 
and they, they may resent having to pay the bank charges that come with credit and debit, debit transactions. So local businesses, I'm sure, would be instinctively easy. They'd be easier to sell on the idea of retaining cash as a, as a form of payment. Whereas the likes of Amazon and the, the, the big retailers are probably that much further down the line of developing their own, dare one say, social credit type, type, type methods. You're a successful financial professional. I wanted to kind of take a step back and look at the, the wider view of things. I think a lot of people now feel something's a bit wrong with our financial system. They may not know what it is, but something doesn't feel quite right. If you look at my parents' generation, they could buy a house and they could save money and then they could have a good pension and all these things, whereas for the current generation, those things feel a bit out of reach. In, there's been economic growth over the past 30 years. I, well, where has the growth gone and, and what's gone so wrong? Well, I think you're right that there is, something has gone wrong. I, I, I alluded earlier to the problem of debt. I think the issue is that pretty much all of us are born as being debt slaves and it's almost impossible to escape from that, from that environment. Um, so uh, for, me, for me, everything comes back to the, the, the debt predicament that governments have got themselves in. So as I say, I think a lot of these problems are ultimately have a, have a common link, which is we're in a, we're in a credit-based society, but the, the, over, the overdraft limit's already been reached and, and thoroughly transcended. So we are probably going to see some form of monetary reset within the next, next months or years. Now, that may or may not sound alarming, but one of my colleagues at work has studied monetary system reset history at the LSE. And the reality is that monetary systems change all the time. So the current global currency system, one that was set up after the Second World War, the, basically the, the dollar is the preeminent currency and everything trades off the dollar, but there's no intrinsic backing to the dollar itself, unlike, say, in a gold standard. But as recently as 1999, was it, when the euro was introduced, you had a brand new monetary system uh, across Europe. So monetary systems do change. I think the average shelf life of monetary system is typically around 30 years, whereas the one that we currently have globally is now 50 years old and counting. Right. So, you know, the, the, the one that was introduced after the Nixon oil shock of, uh, gold shock rather, of 1971. So the system's creaking at the seams. It will have to be replaced because otherwise you'll see this slow or perhaps not so slow drift away from the use of the dollar into other currencies, BRICS type, type rival currencies. So something's going to change, but ideally whatever the, the beauty of, of something like gold as a form of money is that no one's ever had to be coerced or pressured into using it. Its use arose spontaneously in a free market. Whereas the system that we, we live in today, you, you basically have to use their currency for payment of goods and services and taxes. But that, that's effectively a, uh, an economic transaction that's ultimately backed up by military force. Whereas the likes of gold and silver have always, have always been, people have been perfectly happy to use them and they're very rare and they're precious and they're precious for a reason. So there are alternatives out there. We are probably going to have some, some form of monetary reset, but ideally it will be a monetary reset led by the market and not by central banks. So I'd say the fundamental problem that we're living in economically is that, is that the market is being manipulated by central banks, but the interests of that manipulation are not people in the market, they are the central banks and governments themselves. So the whole thing's been stolen by politicians, basically. So do you think these CBDCs are them setting up for, for this reset? I think that they're, they're clearly going to try it. But as I say, 
as a, as a, again, as a free market libertarian, the, the, the proof of the pudding will be in the eating as to what actually gets adopted. What I would love to see is the, the failed introduction of CBDC, and it's, it's a fantastic failure, and it basically destroys the concept forever. And you know, this could happen because unless it's absolutely compulsory, obligatory to use this stuff, there are always alternatives. In prison, for example, not that I've spent any time there, but in prison, you know, the, the prison system evolves its own currency, which might be matches, uh, might be matchsticks, it might be uh, tobacco, it might be gum, whatever. But there's a, a form of payment arises that people will, will use. So it is perfectly, uh, in, in, as I anticipate things, even with the introduction of CBDC, you'll be able to use other things because it'll be a question of what people will accept, not what they're forced to use. Right. There's a, a period in economic history which is fascinating called uh, the, 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 the specific thing is the Edict of Diocletian, which I think was second century AD, but I, I don't, don't quote me on that. But basically Diocletian was a Roman emperor who inherited a, basically a high inflationary problem. The Roman legions were everywhere. It was costing a fortune. Prices were going up. And as a result, Diocletian issued this edict, which became known as the Edict of Diocletian, that basically said, to try and address the problem of high prices, he said, grain prices will not go higher on pain of death. Right. And you know what happened to grain prices? They still went up. So governments can try and introduce price measures and, and fixes, but it never, ever works. But did anyone die? Well, I, I, I don't know whether it was enforced or not, but the right. point is the grain prices still went up. So... There's a fantastic book, I'm trying to think of the title, it's, 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 I think it's called 40 Centuries of Wage and Price Controls. But basically governments, what we're living through is not a new problem. Mm. Every administration ultimately always over, in a fiat system where you can print money basically out of the, you know, de, ex nihilo, out of thin air, then politicians will abuse that privilege. Because you would. And so this is a, a, a continually recurrent problem throughout history. So this is not new news. The only issue is now there's, a tech, there's all kinds of technological things that can replace it. So we're talking about the threat of CBDC. But how about Bitcoin? So Bitcoin could perfectly happily fill that gap as well. I suspect a lot more people would be happy using Bitcoin than they would be using CBDCs. We've had gold-backed currencies before, haven't we? It's not kind of like a, a far-out thing. Not at all, and, and some ec economists have made the point that the, the experience of the last, say, 50 years is anomalous in having been a paperback system that's not been backed by any, by any kind of commodity standard. So you could argue it's the exception rather than the rule. Um, there is a book, I can't remember the name of the author, but it's called Gold, the Wants and Future Money. So it, it, it is perfectly plausible that we could revert to that system, but that would mean that banking and central banking would need to completely change. Banks would not be happy working in a gold-backed system because it would limit their capacity to lend effectively without limit. Right. So it would, it would impact on their profits, but you know, well, there's the world's smallest violin playing for banking profits. And what can we do in, in, to try and kind of fix this issue? Uh, I think ultimately this may require a political a change in politics. So, for it example, need to be the whole world. It's a good question. Um, I think it would probably need to start in the States as the, as the, as the US is the largest economy and also the, the most heavily indebted country. Um, I think there is, I'd like to think there is the, the appetite for political change and for economic change. Just, just have a fairer system, as you say. It's not a fair system at the moment. People are basically born into debt slavery. 
there is an alternative. There are, there are always alternatives, but if we have an honest monetary system, a more honest monetary system, it'll be a better outcome for just about everybody. The only people who would be disadvantaged by that are central bankers. And again, you know, these are the people who, these are the people who caused the inflationary problem in the first place. Well, you mentioned the BRICS before. And what's that kind of role in all of this? It feels worrying when you look at China and they've got these social credit systems and, and things like that. Um, my take on the, the whole sort of BRICS dynamic is that you're basically splitting the world up into the, the, the old West, which would be now the US, the UK and the Eurozone, maybe Japan as well. And then you've got, let's say, the emerging, so-called emerging world or the, the global South, maybe it's just an accurate way of putting it. And the realities we're now seeing is a lot of those countries resent having to pay for stuff in dollars when they can't clearly control the purchasing power of those dollars because every year they're getting worth less and less and less. Mm. Ergo, you have a new currency system that it would help, it would be in the interest of those countries, not least because they're resource-rich countries. So I think this, this debate ultimately comes down to a very binary choice. That question is, as an investor, as an unconstrained global investor, do you want to put your faith in unbacked fiat paper promises, promises made by politicians, or do you put that faith into real assets, a claim on the productive economy, things like metals, commodities, and so forth? For us, it's abundantly clear that the politicians' promises are not worth anything, that the future belongs to the real economy, and I think that's really where the story of the whole BRICS dynamic comes in. Where do you see things going, say, the next five or ten years economically? I couldn't even tell you what I think is going to happen in the next five days. So what's going to happen in the next five years is certainly above my pay grade. What I'd like to think is that we do see meaningful political change, though. I think if we go back, just roll the clock back, say, to, to 2020, the idea that we have any kind of real political uh, competition here in the UK is a nonsense. You had the Conservatives pressing for lockdown and the so-called opposition pressing for an even harder, faster lockdown. We didn't have a functioning opposition. You see the same kind of problems in the what's been called the uniparty in the States, whereas it, where it doesn't matter who you vote for because you get the same politics anyway. What are, I, it's, it, it certainly will, will sound like wishful thinking, but what I earnestly hope is that the main political parties will over time be wiped out when people realize how badly served they are by them, and they'll be replaced if that, if that is even possible, and I accept it's a long, a long, it seems like a long shot now, if that's even possible, then logically they ought to get replaced by what I would say would be a, a range, a vast array of localist, grassroots, bottom-up parties, basically brand new parties. Mm. And I, hope that, I really hope that happens. Tim Price, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you.